Welcome to episode 305 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Monday, 29th of August, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Nog, 20 years young this year, started with a scattergun portfolio of bike products, a messy mix of messenger bags, shoes and cycling gloves, tapping into the zeitgeisty fixie-cum single-speed scene of the early to mid-2000s. But there was also the Tadpole, an LED handlebar light with front and rear-facing LEDs. This turned out to be the Australian design company's breakthrough product, far more in demand from a global audience than the eye of the beholder soft goods. But it was the next LED offering which made the company's fortune. Shaking up the technical but staid lighting market, Nog's Halo product was The Frog, a silicon-covered LED that, with its much-copied stretchy tail, could be easily, quickly and securely strapped and unstrapped from seat posts and handlebars. More than 10 million of these iconic bike lights have been sold since 2006. I'm Carlton Reed, and today I'm talking with Nog's co-founder and CEO, Hugo Davidson. I've been reporting on the company from the very beginning, including trade mag scoops on Nog's successful sachets into the world of copyright infringement protection. The Chinese-made frog was easy to copy, leading to what could have been crushing sales losses for the putative innovator. In this half-hour episode, you'll hear how Hugo and his co-founder invested to protect the company's IP and how the edgy marketing of the company's early days, a punk messenger aesthetic, morphed as Nog matured. Go, people listening to, uh, to this will, I'm sure, know your product. Uh, they perhaps have had a, a, a Nog blinder or... Uh, any of the other ones that you, you've brought out over the years, or perhaps even, uh, uh, sad to say, it, the copies that have, have come on the market and, 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 <laughs> and copied what you, what you did. There's been a few of those, yep, absolutely. There has. Uh, but you didn't... I, I know where you've come from, uh, because I was there when you first sprang on the on the scene in the early 2000s. But but tell everybody else, because you, you weren't originally lights. You, you had a broad a very broad portfolio of products didn't you we did yeah and um yeah it's interesting Carlton. you were there you're one of the first to uh, i suppose recognize um maybe the potential uh maybe just that there were a couple of of uh, uh of guys who really didn't know much about the bike industry um so we this is our 20th year this year so um we're having an anniversary which uh is very exciting and we stemmed from um design consulting background 
And um, so we'd been designing and developing products for all sorts of other companies uh, doing um, computers and mobile phones and toasters and kettles, you know, the typical sorts of industrial design products that you would uh, you would associate with a design company. Um, and, and back then in around about 2002, we wanted to develop our own products. So the... The idea, I think, stemmed from one of our um, employees who had worked at a bike store, and that was about as close as we'd come to bikes. Besides the fact that we, you know, we rode uh, bikes when we were a little bit younger, and we, so we, we, it wasn't necessarily a passion for the sport. It was a passion for products and developing things that were unique and were different. And um, so we thought it was a great industry because the people were very um straight up and there was a they had a passion for what they did and that was far more exciting to us than maybe um working with consumer electronics per se and uh so mm. Hugo, can we just yeah. stop that can we could could you just define we oh, sure, and where sure. because it, it was it was tell me the company name and, and your company founder uh, co-founder yep. And, and and where you were because we haven't discussed where oh, sure. you were because you're Copenhagen yeah, now, but we, 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 where we your base, base, where Nog yeah, is we from? We originate from Melbourne, Australia, uh, and Malcolm McKechnie, who's uh, my business partner and an engineer, and myself, uh, who uh, I'm an industrial designer by you know profession. Um, we had had this consulting company back in Melbourne, working for all sorts of companies. So um, it was. Uh, one of our employees back then who was a designer who said, look, the bike industry has lots of generic Chinese products um, and really there's so much scope for doing something which is different. So we started exploring that. And that's when we realised, ah, look at this, these these lights really don't offer anyone terribly much, uh, anything terribly exciting. If you remember back 20 years ago, a bike light was two double double A batteries and a couple of little LEDs um, and that was it, really, you know, and uh, that was starting to, to use halogen lights for the front, and there was, so we started doing that, but we realised very quickly, Carlton, that we could, you know, there was um, there were shoes that people needed, and, and all bike shoes looked the same, so we thought, let's, like, let's look at, <laughs> let's look at some shoes that are completely different. Um, we did waterproof jackets, and um, in fact, one of the first uh, dis- distribution partners we met was a British company called Extra. Um, and Brian, I met at one of the bike shows and he said to me, um, you know, there's lots of opportunity because it's so wet in, in the UK, you should be focusing on these sorts of products. And another distributor we may have, we, we found in Australia said, oh, I, th- I think you should be doing um, this sort of a product. So, uh, and they were look, looking at luggage. So we ended up doing luggage, saddlebags, backpacks, um, you know all these sorts of things. We and the other thing which was interesting from our perspective, probably I don't know if it was interesting from anyone else's, but we because we'd had a consulting company, we had really very strong uh, links with a lot of manufacturers in China who worked in particular areas. And so some were some worked with um, fabrics and textiles, some worked with luggage. Um, all of these are all areas that I designed products for in a previous life, probably in the previous 10 years. And so we just went back to the same factories and said, look, you know, would you be interested in working with us on a new range of, of bags? 
Um, and so it was a very easy, quick entry for us into the industry with products that um, we could manufacture and sample quickly. And so we turned up to the first, our first trade show in Taiwan um, with just a hand, like a bag full of samples um, that were, we had no idea if anyone would buy them and we had no idea if uh, there was any interest in them. And we'd, we'd gone to one of the factories that made bike lights and picked a few of their products that we thought we could rebadge as well, which we don't do anymore, but that was our first strategy as well. Um, plus this very unique bike light, which mm. um, plugged into the end of your uh, handlebar, which was our first real product. Um, so that's how we started. It was it was uh, a sporadic approach across a whole range of different products based on the background we had as a design company. And um, it was it was so exciting. I just remember thinking, oh, my goodness, we're, um, I think that first trade show, we, we ended up um, signing up 16 countries. Mm. And um, we looked at, Mal and I looked at each other and went, I think, I think we've got a business here. Mm. You know, I think we've, it's, <laughs> so that was really the, that was the start um, 20 years ago. So, uh, yeah, fascinating. Well, congrats and happy birthday. Now, I'm looking at um, one of my original stories uh, through the beauty of, of, of archiving on the web. And it's not my first story. That must have been in like in Bike Biz, the mag. But I can see on the website, bikebiz.com, I can see for 2003 that that you had 35 cycling accessories at that time, which is clearly massive. So you, you must have very, very quickly whittled that down. So was it just what sold <laughs> yep. the most? Or because you said, you know, Brian from, um, from Extra would say, do this and your other people. So how did you yep. fi- kind of like fixate on the the handlebar light uh which then you know which which then developed into the silicon you know wraparound light which is you know the, the, what yes, we, yes. we know you at yep. for or i i certainly know you for anyway um so h- how did you very quickly narrow it down look we we had um uh, probably the 2003 or thereabouts anyway, we, we maybe, I, I can't exactly remember the, the year, um, when we did develop the first of the silicon lights. And um, they really were the, it, that was the product that mm. um, captured people's imaginations. But predominantly because it was it was a redefinition of what, of how you put a bike light on your bike and how easy it was and, and the colour. I mean, everything before that was black. So we mm. bought it out in 12 colours. Mm. Um, and so, um, the, and the success of that particular product, the, the first little frog light, um, meant that we ended up with a beetle and a bullfrog and a toad and a, uh, you know, we, we ended up with a one, two, three, four, five different LED products for front and rear. And, um, and uh, it was at that point actually that the, these early distributors that we had picked up in different regions, uh, looked at us and said, well, what, um, these are clearly, the front runner. These are the things that sell most. Why? Um, I don't really want to have a warehouse full of bags, and and I don't really want to have you know clothes are difficult. Um, they're okay. We like what you've done, but they're not your core skill. You know, could you please not design, not develop any more products quickly because we can't we can't afford to put them in our warehouse. Um, mm. So we were very like unique, not unique, naively. We were of the opinion that we'll just design anything. And people will buy it, um, and we found out very, very quickly that um, that a, a product sold in America it has to be a very different product to those sold in Europe, 
Um, you know, similarly, something sold in Switzerland is very different from something sold in Staten, Spain, um, or, or Southern Italy. So, so every, every region has, um, a particular nuance or, or requirement. And learning that was, um, probably at the, uh, well, we had some very understanding distributors who just sort of bought things because we made them and then told us six months later that they hadn't sold and that we, they wouldn't buy anymore. So it wasn't long. It, it, it wasn't very long before we realised that lighting was our thing, and that's where mm. we, um, you know, we we were most successful. And so we really just we just decided that we would focus our efforts in trying to actually master what it was as a lighting company in relation to optics and performance and function. And, and when we did that, things um, uh, were very much more focused, and our approach mm. was very much more focused. So quite apart from the, the brilliance of that 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 frog light, which I, I remember vividly, I, I remember oh, me having, me having, <laughs> I probably haven't got them in the garage still. In fact, uh, orange ones, and, and you said that there's lots of different colours there, but I remember vividly the orange ones um, and, and how they wrapped around. And that definitely was was very different uh, for the time. But quite a, apart from that, you, you were known certainly for the first few years um a, a good five years probably for your really your your punk marketing and and you you were you're, 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 i'm sure you were probably told by your distributors what earth are you doing here this is so out there because you were really yeah. really out there weren't you we we loved i mean I, you've got to understand i suppose uh, having worked from my perspective having worked in a consulting company where you would uh, um, provide some ideas for someone and, and your client typically would choose the most conservative idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly having an opportunity to to build a brand um, yourself and to, to determine the tone and the approach yourself without anyone saying that you could or you couldn't do it was absolutely liberating. And um, so... We, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, we had we were very lucky because the the chap that we'd found to help us with all the marketing was himself a genius, um, Mike Elliott. He yeah, was, Mike. Uh, he was a creative. Yeah, he was really out there and had worked with uh, brands like Crumpler in the past. And he came to us and said, "You know, guys, I know you want this to be a brand about safety, and you know, but if safety is not that sexy, um, you know, what well, I think." I think what we should do, if you really want to make a difference, we should, the, the key phrase for the, the or the, the byline should be sexy urban bike. And, you know, that's what people are after. They, so uh, I, I was listening intently, trying to work out what that meant for me, um, and suddenly realised that when the first images for the catalogue came out, there were, you know, there was a, a lot of imagery which I wasn't expecting. Um, but... Um, it was it, and it was polarizing. It was it was no question. It it got it it, it grabbed people's attention. Um, I you could recognize suddenly the engaging the engagement from everyone around you, and of course uh, um, you don't deny that. You sit back and go, well, if that's what's going to happen if we do this sort of thing, then I think that's a let's let's start here, see where it goes to. So, so, so um, Mike, let's, let's, was, just, let's just describe Mike because Mike Mike's a, yeah. a tall guy, uh, kind <laughs> of like a, a bicycle <laughs> messenger a, type aesthetic so tattoos cycling cap beard big red beard deep deep, very thick rim glasses looks a little bit like a gnome on steroids (laughs) um 
and he he, he did. Look, when he started with us, he he uh, um, he was far more conservative. But I think he took on the brand as well, and so he was with us for for quite some time. Um, really, until um, uh, I think we realised that the you know we were, we had had polarised uh, mm. a large portion of the market that we, that um, that no longer wanted to buy our products, and people were growing up. And the fixed gear scene had moved from being fixed gear and those cyclists were moving on and we were at risk of actually just becoming irrelevant because we'd sort of hadn't moved with the time. So, um, you know, Mike had, uh, had made an incredible impression and was quite happy then to move on to other projects and, and, and we decided we would try and sort of consolidate, um, consolidate what we were doing and, and, uh, and broaden our appeal a little bit more. So you became like... You know, you went through the adolescent phase, in effect, and 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 you've matured. But those those early <laughs> yeah. days, they they they, yeah. they still. They, I'm sure lots of people who who are back there in the day will will still associate you with those early days because that that absolutely propelled your brand. Quite apart from the brilliance of the product, it was the brilliance of of the market. Now you can't sustain yes. that clearly because there was some very anarchic marketing going on. There was some. I remember some incredible uh, Eurobike booths with. Was it like um, Action yes. Men and and Barbie dolls? You know, we in, had intertwined bondage, bondage in rather Barbie strange and, ways. Yeah. yeah, there was some there was some pretty <laughs> strange stuff out there, but then that just propelled you into yes. you know a moment mature company because you you couldn't sustain that. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that's true, and and I and I do think too. Given, I mean, it wasn't just Mike. Uh, we have you know we had a, a whole stable of people and. What I loved about that particular period of time is that if you provide people with the license to go and do, you know, to, to work within a framework um, and to have fun, then they did. So the people who were designing the, the the trade shows and the booths and the exhibitions, along with all of the print and the photography and the video, it, it, there were there were a lot of people involved, and everyone just was. We were having a lot of fun and i think it, i think it showed mm. um so i mean we still have a lot of fun but it's just that i'm 20 years older than mm. i was back then like yeah, as you say it's not sustainable yeah mm. and then uh, with, with the success of a, of a product that is is groundbreaking and is is, is new uh, you very quickly suffered from from knockoffs so, so you've had a fair few intellectual property fights over the years would that be fair to we say? have yep yeah and and we quite and, and and thank you, Carlton, for your support over the years because you've actually um, been very, uh, uh, I suppose, influential in your ability to to report on those, and that's been great. Yeah, we 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 take it very seriously, and um, we certainly didn't initially because we didn't realise how it would impact our business. And uh, when the first of the knockoff silicon products came i think our, our sales dropped by 50 percent in six months wow. um so we really went from from riding quite a, a high um you know being on a bit of a, a high and then um realizing that actually no one everyone was associating these silicon products with cheap chinese products mm. and um they'd lost their um their boutique uh interest and, and they would they were flooded the market so um we had to uh change approach um the first patent i think we wrote we wrote ourselves because we couldn't afford to get a patent attorney um and uh, we held that up and they, and they laughed at it so we started getting proper uh, uh advice from intellectual 
uh, lawyers, intellectual property lawyers, and and we from that point on we've registered and all patented every design that we've done. Um, and it's been really interesting because it, while it's very expensive to run a patent case and actually you know chase people down, um, it has been a, a great way of stopping Chinese. Um, factories copying and probably the most effective was uh, a few years ago when um, we'd found uh, that there was a company who had blatantly copied our products um, and was advertising and they, they were going to show at Eurobike and we knew um, we managed to get the, the customs pol- police to uh, um, to take uh, take every take their stand down and remove all the products from the stand, um, and we got some uh, the international press to to record that. So when that happened, um, and it was sort of broadcast to the world, it, clearly the Chinese factory suddenly took notice, and we've had very very few direct copies from that point on, um, because I think people realise that we take it seriously. You know, it does it does work. Uh, it's expensive, it's ex- but it's, it's expensive. It's it takes a worthwhile. big part of your budget, I'm guessing. To protect, it does, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Mm. It does, yeah. It's probably half a million dollars a year we spend on intellectual property, which is, you know, it's an awful amount. That's just sort of straight profit that goes back in, but it does allow us to to stop um, to stop the copy products. And there's also a wonderful company in Italy that that now searches the web mm. for any Chinese copies, and it's like whack a mole, and they actually shut them down. Mm. So that's another part of the strategy. And and together, I think. Um, all of these things help to to fight and to um, ensure that if a company like ours is being innovative and is developing products that are unique, and, and we invest so much energy and time and um, and passion in coming up with something that's new, then it's only fair that um, someone else shouldn't profit from that. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a very strong believer that that's, um, that that's the way we've got to go. Hey everyone, this is David from the Fredcast and the Spokesman, and I'm here once again to tell you about our amazing sponsor, Turn Bicycles, at www.turnbicycles.com. T-E-R-N bicycles.com. Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. Speaking of, of being able to ride every day, as a Spokesman listener, I'm going to bet that you are the go-to consultant for your friends who want to ride but aren't enthusiasts and need some advice on what to buy. In that case, you may have people in your life for whom you just haven't been able to recommend just the right bike, considering their stature, age, mobility issues, or just plain hesitance to get back on a bike. Finally, those family members and friends can experience a new bike day with the all-new turn NBD. Get it? New Bike Day NBD. Okay, the NBD has been specifically designed to be confidently easy to handle and easy to ride, even well, even for those folks who might be, as Josh Hahn, team captain of Turn Bicycles says, are smaller in size and have a hard time finding a bike that fits, or older riders who might not have ridden a bike in a while, or Riders who might have balance or physical issues or riders who are just intimidated by the sheer size and weight of the average e-bike. As Josh goes on to say, the NBD will be refreshingly easy to hop aboard and ride. 
Now, how can Josh be so confident in that? Well, it's simple. The NBD has the lowest, longest step-through opening of any premium e-bike. So if you know someone with a knee or a hip injury or, or somebody who just can't lift their leg over the top tube of a regular bike, this alone could make all the difference. Plus, the NBD is designed with an ultra-low center of gravity and a longer wheelbase. And what does that mean? Well, it means that it makes it easy to balance and handle. And with a lowered bottom bracket and motor, the NBD is stable for all riders. It particularly inspires confidence for shorter cyclists because they can easily get their feet on the ground when they come to a stop. But the MBD isn't just for shorter riders. As a matter of fact, it adjusts in seconds, without tools, by the way, to fit riders from 4 foot 10 to 6 foot 3 or 147 to 190 centimeters. The NBD is also super comfortable with its upright riding position, swept handlebars, suspension seat post, and wide 20-inch balloon tires. Need to load the NBD into a car? No problem. It folds flat in seconds. How about getting in, in, it into a smaller living space? No sweat. The NBD includes turns vertical parking features so you can roll the bike into a small elevator and park it in a corner of your apartment. Now, with a max gross vehicle weight of 140 kilos, that's 308 pounds, the NBD can easily carry an extra passenger and plenty of cargo. With up to 27 kilos on the rear rack and up to 20 kilos on the front rack. And in fact, it works with a wide range of turn accessories and with most child seats. As I've said before, and this is important to me, really important, safety is a core value at turn. And that's why the NBD frame and fork have been rigorously tested by one of Europe's leading bike test labs. That's also why Turn chooses to use the Bosch motor and battery system. It's one of the few systems on the market that meets and passes the UL standard for battery and electronics safety. Read the news and you know how important that is. Now the NBD comes in two models with prices starting at $3,899 or €3,999 and bikes are going to start arriving in stores in Q1 of 2023. For more information about the NBD or any of Turn's wide range of bikes, just head on over to TurnBicycles.com. Again, T-E-R-N Bicycles.com. We thank Turn for their sponsorship of the Spokesman Podcast, and we thank you for your support of Turn. Once again, thanks for allowing me this brief introduction, everybody. And now let's get back to Carlton and the Spokesman. Because you, you you then branched out, um, oh, eight years ago maybe, with with the bell. So that was a Kickstarter, didn't you do that? That was a Kickstarter product to begin with. Uh, we, yeah, we did. We did. We we've done a few things on Kickstarter, and um, so yeah, the oil bell uh, was. It's actually probably been our most um, successful product as far as um, just sales it's one of the products i'm most proud of because um it does sort of redefine what a bicycle bell is and we it's had this crazy idea that let's uh, you know uh, kickstart is a great way of marketing products as well as selling them um and so we thought let's what would happen if we put it up there because it was so unique and um it was it had a crazy response carlin that we we ended up um with a video uh, that you put up on the, the Kickstarter site. I think that was viewed um, 580,000 times in those 30 days the campaign was running. Um, 
and I, I, we raised, I think, 1.2 million Australian dollars or something like that. And we sold it into um, 40,000 bells into 92 countries or something. Like the stats were incredible. Mm. Um, and um, it was such a great marketing tool because uh, all of the, I think, bike stores typically look to Kickstarter generally just out of curiosity to see what is coming up. And um, so our distributors were getting calls left, right, and centre from um, from companies who, uh, or from yeah, from retailers who wanted to get their hands on this bell. You know, when's it coming? When's it coming? So um, I think it was at this point in time we've probably sold over four million units since that point, um, which is you know that's a fantastic achievement, and it's just one of those those things that um, you know we we didn't know how long it would last, but I think it really has. Uh, found a place within sort of bike culture as a piece as a piece of equipment that people really like to have on their bikes it's, it's simple very loud and and well and striking you could say literally uh literally striking um so, so again that that's that, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of your ethos of, of, of doing something quite interesting and and different and then doing it really really well if you don't mind me saying oh thank you yeah no thank you and then, look that's that's why i say i'm quite proud of it it's it, it came around the sort of philosophy that we wanted uh, something that was more like jewelry for your bike, mm. you know, something that was, that was, um, people said to us, road cyclists don't use bells. And, uh, and that's quite true and fair enough too, because they're bloody ugly and they're, um, they're a stain on what could be a beautiful bike. So we just set about trying to develop something which, which would be sympathetic to the bike and where people would look at the product and go, Oh my God, I love that. And, and that's, I mean, that's sort of what we try to do with all our products. Um, you know, it's got to have some intrigue, it's got to have something that's unique and something that makes people go, oh, yeah, that's great. So, um, and people are still doing that with the oil bell. I, I show people um, who haven't seen it and still get the same reaction. And yeah, so it's, it's a lovely, it's, that's the satisfaction you get as a designer. Um, I think if you walk down the street and you see something like that on someone's bike, you go, oh, that's nice. You know, that's, they appreciate it. Let me go back to, to that, that story I did a, a few years, 19 years ago, in which I actually um, used a bit of Shakespeare to introduce the word <laughs> nog. Because I, 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 yeah. yeah. back in that, those days, I went, where, where did nog come from? And, uh, and there's, a, there's a Shakespearean phrase where it says, I will nog his urinals. So when it was, I was looking at your, you know, your anarchic punk phase, <laughs> I thought, well, maybe that's where that came from. But then you told me back in the day that, no, it's not. It was just the noggin, the, 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 the head. Is, is that right? Yeah, is that, that's so right. It's just... Yes, it's not as exciting as you'll, uh, <laughs> I'll nog your urinals. But um, <laughs> we, it, I know you, you told me that with great, great, great glee and pleasure i think at the time <laughs> um it's interesting i think uh, i'm not sure uh if we would have named it that had that been the reference um we uh yes look we were the first products we were looking at developing for for ourselves under this brand was um were helmets and uh, we ended up not doing helmets but mm-hmm. that was that was the idea and um so uh, I, we were trying to find a name that uh, for helmets that would work, and noggin was where it stemmed from. And then clearly, uh, I can't spell to save myself, so we we put a silent K in front of it and thought if we if we reduce it to a four letter word, then we can get a good mm. website and um, and something which is sort of recognisable. And we also, <clears throat> I mean, interestingly, 
20 years ago, um, there was quite, uh, if you were Australian brand, or if you were an Australian, you didn't really want to associate yourself with Australia. There was, uh, in Australia, you would have, um, you know, flying kangaroos and mm. there would be Australian made. It was all this sort of um, very, um, I thought it was crass anyway. So we were happy to be considered as a more European style and Nog had a certain uh, ring about it. it was maybe more Scandinavian than mm. than Australian. So, so um, it was just for those all those reasons. We thought that's uh, it's a it's a vessel. It's an empty vessel. We'll use it and we'll fill it up with our own meaning. So that was that was where it came from. Thanks to Hugo Davidson of Knock there, and thanks to you for listening to episode three hundred and five of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found at the hyphen spokesman dot. Come. Episode 306 will be out next month. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.